What would it mean for you to be truly visible? Visibility School is coming. Join us, www.visibility.school. It's time. I'm Kim Cutable, an author, producer, and entrepreneur. Voice Lessons is a podcast about women's lives, what, why, and how they create, and the way that they lead. Who am I to do this? It's a thought that stops many brilliant women with world-changing ideas from getting them done. But when Peyton McGriff got the idea she believed would help young girls get the education they deserve, she knew she had to be brave. While she was an undergrad at the University of Idaho, Peyton learned that the reason many girls in African countries don't get to finish school is because they don't have a uniform. And so, with the help of one of her college professors, she founded Style Her Empowered, She, a company that in less than three years is creating education and employment opportunities for girls and women around the world. Hi, I'm Peyton McGriff, and this is a lesson in courage. What is your earliest memory of being creative? It was when I was allowed to paint my room or choose the color of the paint for my room the first time. And I accidentally chose six and my mom (laughs) let me paint every color of the rainbow all over this huge room. And it was pink, purple, blue, green, orange, and yellow, and just bright as you can imagine. (laughs) I love it. I love that she let you have your freedom in that way. She's always been a huge advocate for creativity. So I think I get a lot of that from her. Love it. So tell me, you were in your undergrad year when you founded Style Her Empowered. I wanted to know more about the company and the inspiration, the idea, where it came from. So the original idea came from a book called Half the Sky. Mm -hmm. And in that that book, do you? Yeah, uh, you do. Yeah. So powerful. I, I love the, those two, the authors. I follow them on Facebook. Yeah. I do too. Yes. Yeah. I love Nick Kristoff <laughs> yeah. and Cheryl. Um, but the story that really inspired me was about a doctor who had tried different ways to keep girls in school and tried everything from paying tuition to paying lunches or anything else, but didn't see a lot of retention rates, but a well-tailored school uniform really saw retention rates skyrocket. And since then, school uniforms have been shown to be one of the most cost-effective ways to keep girls in school around the world. So that was the initial spark, I would say, for this organization. And, and that's a- because that's because women in African countries are required to wear a uniform. Is that right? That's- Just for people who don't know. Yeah, exactly. And a, a lot of governments, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, have made efforts to increase enrollment among girls. So they'll cut the cost of tuition or maybe supplement school supplies. But the cost of that school uniform remains the largest barrier. So it really is kind of an unforeseen but really huge reason girls are not accessing the classroom. 
So you read the book while you were still in school. And, I did. And then the professor, you said you met a professor, is that correct? I did. And he's from Togo originally. And it's a small village called Noche. And he heard about this idea of teaching girls to sew their own school uniforms. He liked the idea and thought it could be a really good fit in his home village. So he said, I'll partner with you under one condition. You have to come to Togo first. So mm. this was about March of my senior year of school. I was interviewing for my dream job and just didn't really expect any of this to happen. But 11 days later, I showed up in Togo <laughs> to research wow. this project. And it was just, you know, incredible experiences with local girls from junior high affirming how much a school uniform gets in the way of their education on a regular basis. So that was kind of what gave us the inspiration to really start. So tell me how it has evolved. Yeah, <laughs> that's a long story. <laughs> it has been such a learning and listening experience. It's been great. But we started with the idea and intent to help girls learn to sew their own school uniforms. So not only were they able to go to school, they had a skill that they could earn a side income and help support themselves through their entire education career. But when we started learning more about what a day in the life of a girl in Togo looks like, we realize there's just not enough hours in the day. Girls are responsible for so many household chores. They wake up at 4 a.m. to fetch water, to prepare food for their siblings, to get everything ready. And then when they get home, the same process. So there wasn't enough time in the structure of the program we had to teach girls to sew a well-tailored uniform that would last them for a long period of time. So we started with an after-school program, like we'll start with skills training, maybe we can teach girls to sew their own reusable menstrual pads, not these you know, large sewing projects that require quite a bit of skill, and we'll hire local seamstresses. And when we started working with local seamstresses in our village, we learned that this was another group of women who were really not being served, and a lot of girls will drop out of school to learn a trade skill. So the highest levels of education among this demographic of women is around two years. So we knew that education and employment would really meet the needs of seamstresses and students. And so we really expanded our vision to include both girls and women at all stages in their educational pursuits. Wow. Where did you get the money to start all of this? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was another unexpected part of the story, too. I, When I came back from Togo, there were student competitions, and they're just entrepreneurship competitions that I had entered. And I went in as one of the only nonprofits, really, so I didn't expect a lot out of these competitions, but won about $35,000 in seed funding in each of wow. those competitions. So that gave us the go-ahead to open our doors in Togo. Mm -hmm. And since then, that uniform idea has developed into something that's you're patenting. What I love about it is that you're making it from recycled materials. Let's talk about what's what's been happening since that. Six months after we provided our first group of girls with new school uniforms, we had 65 girls sponsored. The majority of them had 
grown out of their school uniform just months into the school year. Uh. And we were really picking up on the fact that as you walk through town, you see girls who are wearing these really large uniforms that have either been passed down or, you know, we start asking and girls will get their uniforms made really big so they can go to school. Grow into them. Mm. Yeah, but it's not a dignified a piece of clothing. And it's, you know, very much a society that depends on your socioeconomic status. And that's a real clear indicator that you are, you know, maybe from a family of lower means. So we wanted to create a well-tailored, dignified uniform that could grow up with these girls and didn't become a repeat barrier to their education. So that was how we started trying to create this uniform that grows. And after about a year and a half of failed attempts at creating a dress that can expand, we, we came up with the she uniform and it grows six sizes, a foot in length. And because we know that environmental impacts impact women and girls at a much greater rate, we wanted to, to create a product that was really truly sustainable and circular and thought about the full process. So we select fabrics that are made from recycled materials Every scrap piece of fabric from production is recycled into reusable menstrual pads. So it's a zero waste process. This is just and amazing. I, I love <laughs> that for so many reasons. And I love how conscious you were about that. How many people did it take to develop that product? And how did you get people to buy in? I mean, it's I, I'm bought in already. I'm not even, I wish I could sew. I'm on that team. But who, how did you get people to buy in? It was a, a long process of discovery. We worked with the university that I graduated from with students to try to get the first prototype, working prototype of a dress that expands. And it, we tried it on our girls in Togo and it just wasn't something they liked. So we honestly tabled the idea for quite a while because mm. we didn't want to impose a product that our girls were not interested in. And then it was about a year later, we kind of looked back at the uniforms and realized there still might be some potential there. Let's get our seamstresses design that they've been producing for our girls and see if we can modify that to adjust. And so it was each of our seamstresses contributing on the pro project. We have our creative director in France who stepped in to really take it to the final stage. And it's been, I would say, 20 to 25 people passing these designs around and making sure that they're wear tested. And it wasn't until we got all of our girls to kind of try on the, our dress and the previous design, and each of them said, I would choose the she uniform, that we're like, okay, it works. <laughs> we'll, we'll take that. Do you ever get people saying, you know, you're doing a lot for women and girls in Africa, but what about the women and girls here who are living in poverty? Has anybody addressed that with you? And then how do you respond to those questions? That is something we're so aware of. And for, to, to answer that, we always say Togo is where we started. We've mm -hmm. always intended on expanding our mission beyond the borders of Togo and to be really a global connective resource for girls and women. And our mission statement says serving girls and women around the world. Mm -hmm. So we're two and a half years old now, but we intend to really expand and reach into different communities where women and girls could really benefit from this community. 
I think it's amazing that in two and a half years, this very bold vision that started from a project has actually taken light. What gave you the courage? Oh, there have been moments of burnout, you know, the full journey that I think every startup encounters, but it all comes back to just the incredible people that we work with and serve in Togo. I mean, we get such beautiful connections to our students and our community has been very supportive. So even when we've kind of plateaued for a moment, there's still so much work being done in country and our girls are attending our meetings every week. So we really ride the high of the culture of our community and that keeps us going through all these different turns and pivots and you know, unexpected adventures, but there's been so many ups and downs and we just have had to really fight for our cause and remember how much we believe in this work because really that's what drives us all at the end of the day. So you said your creative director is in France. So how did you assemble the team for this project? We have been scrappy, I think is how we (laughs) say it. We are on three continents in four cities and across so many time zones. And we do so much of our communication over WhatsApp, but it was a long time building a team dynamic and a team culture that really empowers everybody because we all have to be big decision makers because there's just so much of a gap between us. Courage is something that we have to use a lot. It's been about two years of really building our team to, to get that working dynamic. And was it by referral or were you advertising for jobs? Did you, how did you assemble it? The current positions that are occupied right now, we have a creative director in Paris. I actually met her from afar at one of those competitions. She was on another team. And when they were announcing the awards, they showed a short little video that we put together and mine was this cheesy animation. And she saw that animation. And a year later, I get an email from someone who says, hey, I'm in Paris. I'm studying fashion at Parsons right now. So I think I can actually contribute to your team. I've been following you this whole time. And I'm like, where have you been? (laughs) (laughs) She's been waiting. She'd been waiting to help. I love that. She has been such an amazing gift to the team. And then our development director in Togo, she originally was a translator for us. We had organized a different translator who got a job the day before we arrived. And so she's like, called her friend Fauzi, who's our director now. And it was just a total divine moment that we all met. And now we just built an amazing relationship with her. So it was, people have come to this organization unexpectedly, but it's just attracted some incredible light. How many people are on the team? So on our executive team, we have four people. That's myself, Clara in in Paris, and then two directors in Togo. And then we have 14 seamstresses and tutors and local program administrators in Togo as well. There's so many layers to being a team from three continents, four cities. I mean, there's a lot of baked in cultural differences. And so if you if you don't exercise the courage to call those things out and to address them head on and to really work together to figure out the source of any differences, then it can really be a tough thing to overcome. Yeah. I mean, you were looking for a dream job. 
So yep. entrepreneur, <laughs> entrepreneur is a is definitely a mindset. Mm-hmm. Entrepreneur involves a different set of skills. Were you prepared for that? Not at all. And I think I often say I spent the first year really falling face first through the entire journey. I didn't expect to win funding. I didn't expect to start this organization till much later in life. I mean, it just was a totally different life that I had calibrated for. And so when I stepped off that ledge into she, I had to really meet some incredible people that could help me select the metrics I measured my life by very intentionally. Because I think that is all of the training that you don't get in entrepreneurship classes or programs or competitions. It's really how you bridge that gap between the first year and really proving your concept. So it was a quite a personal journey for sure. So let's talk about that, the metrics, the metrics that you weren't measuring that you did choose to measure by. What Do you mind sharing what some of those were? Getting back to my own personal values and articulating those well, because I think I had just seen values as, oh yeah, I want to be a good person. I want to have a good impact in the world and not paid a lot of attention to those but it wasn't until I started working with a coach that I really clearly articulated what a value is for me. And my top value is humor. And I mm-hmm. would have never selected that as a value. <laughs> <laughs> but I, that really has been the saving grace through so much of this is that we all share such an awesome sense of humor together. And the others are authenticity, graciousness, and also assumption of positive intent. So it's not just my value for my work. It's who I am as a person. A lot of women think, who am I to actually run with this idea? Who am I to do this? And again, it come back to what gave you that courage? Like what made you think, no, I must do this. I don't know. It's hard to take credit for that, I think. And the amount of incredible people who've supported and backed us have been the fillers of those gaps in confidence and courage. And the fact that we started with something tangible like a uniform felt actionable. And that was ever evolving and wanting to do more. Perhaps there is more courage associated with it. KPMG Women's Leadership Study found that 86% of women report that when they see more women in leadership, they are encouraged and they can get there themselves. Why did you think it was important to use your voice for women and girls in this way? You explained reading the book, but why did you think it was important in this moment now to use your voice? Because it became so apparent to me that there are still so many barriers that prevent other women from using their voices. There's this quote I love that says, talent is equally distributed, opportunity is not. And so it was just apparent to me that I am someone who really has benefited from a ton of privilege in my life. And so that is on me to start to dismantle the systems that I have benefited from and to start to really redistribute opportunity in an equitable way. Because if I, someone who's benefiting from privilege, am not doing it, nobody's going to, you know, and we have to be a huge part of that conversation. So you were encouraged to lead as a child then, would you say? And did you have a role model for that? You know, I had leadership positions as a child. My dad founded a nonprofit when I was little. And so I think that, you know, subconsciously showed to me that if there was something that we wanted to do, you 
step in and do it. And Mm -hmm. if that's an opportunity you see to actualize that. So I think that was a huge role model for me in my life. There have been just incredible women around the world who've done so much more work than we have before me. So two and a half years in, I think you, you got some time, but were, (laughs) were you taught that you had to, I mean, dad was modeling that for you, but were you taught that you had to make a difference? Because you just said, you know, you felt like it's your obligation to dismantle a system that you've been privileged by. A lot of women don't think that way. Hmm. So what is it that makes you think that way? A lot of that comes from a unique childhood. I was a child of divorce and I grew up in Idaho and my father is gay. And so we actually faced a lot of adversity in a very conservative community Mm. and kind of seeing that my script had been written before I had an opportunity to show my talents or to show my value. It was just predetermined for me. And I understood clearly what that felt like. And you know, don't get me wrong. I understand there's so much other privilege I benefited from, but I also under had a really innate understanding of adversity and being viewed as less than simply for who you are. So I think that was a big motivator for me. I felt like I didn't have a voice in that. So it was when I found my voice, I wanted to be part of a larger collective voice. I love that. I love that so much. Do you have male mentorship or female mentorship is, do you have a preference? Do you, I'm guessing you benefited from both as we all have Mm -hmm. benefited from both, but curious, do you see a difference between female and, and male mentorship in this way? I think there's absolutely a difference and it's not that it's gender exclusive. I just think as a whole, women embody, you know, more empathic characteristics. They really focus in on who you are as a person. And I, when I was first starting out with she, I had a great mentor who said, I'm going to put together a panel of rad women for you because I think that's what you need. And he was a man. And so <laughs> it's great. I, I love like, it. Well, thank you. So in this, this group meeting, I was expecting to talk about the organization, why it was going to work and getting started. I, they never asked me to open my laptop or anything. They're like, what do you want as a person? And what does your life look like over the next 10 years? Forget this company. Let's build that first. Mm. And then we can really, really, you know, make both of these things work. And that was a huge, huge point for me in really honoring myself and and the organization. Do you think there's such a thing as feminine leadership then? And if yes, how would you define that? I think there's absolutely a such thing as feminine leadership. I think it's very much community-based and from a, a source of empathy and values. I think the conversations that I have with women leaders are very much centered around all stakeholders, so that it's not just your customers, it's your employees. I mean, there's just a real thoughtfulness and a real care in feminine leadership. And I think that's because we have experienced a system that's not working for us for all of the time. And so we're reflecting on these systems and where there's opportunity for change and adjustment because we recognize that the systems are broken. This holistic model that we're trying to build in education for adult women and employment, but also education and employment skills for girls and how that 
is more of a synergistic model, a circular system where girls have access to education and skills training, and adult women who've never been able to access the classroom have access now to education and employment development. So it's these two pieces really serving each other and expanding the, the impact and doing that all in a way that benefits the environment and creates thoughtful circular systems. And we've had this conversation on the podcast before, an uh, episode we did about water, that so many of the systems that we have built as human beings in this moment have been mm. about extraction. Whereas mm. in nature, everything is about circular, is a circular fluid ecosystem that one thing feeds the next thing and the refuse of one person feeds the next person. One of the things you said early on when we started is that it's been an exercise in listening. So you're really listening to what people are, are experiencing and then you're solving problems from that place of, mm. I, we don't know best but right. we're, we're going to listen to what it is you need. Even the fact that you shelved the uniforms. At first, a lot of that comes from my own imposter syndrome as a 22-year-old leader, not feeling like I have any skills to lead us in the right direction. So I'm just trying to absorb as much as I can. So at the beginning, it might not have been such an intentional pursuit, but seeing how much that has really helped the organization evolve in such an inclusive way that has become such a core value for us. Have you written to Nicholas Kristoff? and let them know what an impact their book has had. I think I wrote like probably right back in the beginning of like, hey, this book inspired me. And, but I think it would be, you know, that would just be the most full circle moment to express gratitude to them. We'll tag him when we post this interview. <laughs> <laughs> if I asked you to complete the sentence, my wish for every other woman is, my wish for every other woman is that she has everything she needs to not just survive, but flourish. You have all of the answers when you ask the right questions. Be visible. Speak your truth. Every other woman needs you to lead. Voice Lessons is produced, written, and spoken by me, Kim Cutable. It's also produced and edited by Sergio Miranda and associate produced by Jessica Manalga. Our music was created by singer-songwriter Claire Hamill. You can find out when we post new episodes when you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. And if you liked what you've heard, we would love it if you leave us a review. You can join our community at Facebook forward slash Voice Lessons Podcast to speak with me live after every episode is posted. And if you have a question or comment or want to suggest a guest, you can do it there. Or if you're on Instagram, tag us at Voice Lessons Podcast and use the hashtag LessonUp. 
For other inspiration, updates, and show notes, subscribe at voicelessonspodcast.com.